The University of Georgia Griffin Campus invites you to join us for news and information about the many and varied programs and activities at the UGA Griffin Campus. Information about gardening, the agriculture programs, and your UGA degree at the University of Georgia Griffin Campus. Your UGA degree is closer than you think. This program is made possible by Frank and Carolyn Harris of Round Oak Resources Tree Farm and Murray and Company Realtors. Listen each Thursday at 9 o'clock a.m. for the UGA Griffin Campus News. This program is produced by WKU AM 1450 and 102.3 FM and The Rock 88.9 FM and streamed live on our website, wkuradio.com. Join us now with our guests from the UGA Griffin Campus. University of Georgia Griffin Campus invites you to join us for news and information about the many and varied programs and activities at the UGA Griffin Campus. Information about gardening, the agriculture programs, and your UGA degree at the University of Georgia Griffin Campus. Your UGA degree is closer than you think. This program is made possible by Frank and Carolyn Harris of Round Oak Resources Tree Farm and Murray and Company Realtors. Listen each Thursday at 9 o'clock a.m. for the UGA Griffin Campus News. This program is produced by WKU AM 1450 and 102.3 FM and The Rock 88.9 FM and streamed live on our website, wkuradio.com. Join us now with our guests from the UGA Griffin Campus. And good morning and welcome to this week's installment of the University of Georgia Griffin Campus News being heard on AM 1450, 102.3 FM and 88.9 FM, the Rock Georgia Public Radio at its finest. I'm the host of this morning's proceedings, Sports Director Tony Brasky, and we are joined as we are customarily on the third week of the month by Bob Westerfield, the Horticulture Extension Specialist on the UGA Griffin Campus. We're going to talk a little gardening, but we're going to take a little different tact. We're going to find out a little bit about what more bob westerfield actually does on the job i mean we know about the gardening we know about all the classes that you hold throughout the state with the extension service we know about the you know the group sites that you go out on and investigate people's problems but we're going to learn more about your day-to-day activities bob first let's welcome you back to the program pleasure to have you back well it's nice to be here and i think last time we we're here about was going to snow out it was pretty cold so it's nice to have a little bit more pleasant weather on the horizon for all our gardeners and uh certainly looks like today's going to be a pleasure does uh does the the fluctuating temperatures that we've had does that have any impact i mean does nature get a little bit confused when we're in the 80s one day two days later we have a three or four day stretch where we're barely hitting the 60s then the next thing you know we're up in the upper 70s again that roller coaster just won't seem to stop yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's really, uh, it's, it's amazing to watch, and every year it seems to be different, but um, certainly in the landscape, you know, we've seen some things that got spanked pretty hard on some of those very late frosts we had. Um, I think we're out of the woods on the frost now, but we've certainly been in the 40s, and, uh, you know, some of those plants have, have, have kind of jumped out when we were warm, thinking, hey, we're in the summer now, and boom, it got spanked. Just had a couple of pictures come across the computer this morning about tomato plants that had uh, leaves that were kind of burned and white-looking inside, and I immediately... 
I said, well, that's going to be cold damage right there. And, you know, it doesn't actually have to be frosty. It doesn't have to be 32 degrees to get cold damage on plants that are basically either tropical or subtropical. You start going down in the 40s and get a little wind going. Um, certainly, as we know, we could get cold if we didn't have a coat on in that temperature. The plants will as well. So, yeah, we're seeing that the landscape and, and for that matter, the vegetable garden is having a little slow start. But I think things are going to kind of be looking up. Well, do you think that part of this stems from people maybe planting just a little bit too soon, not waiting for that soil temperature to hit that ideal mid-60s? No, you don't think that happens, do you? <laughs> I mean, I get the impatience. I, that's you my job get security. I mean, that's why I have a job at University of Georgia, because people do things that sometimes aren't exactly right, and then they call us to figure out what went wrong. But uh, absolutely, um, yeah, you know, we tell people, wait, wait, wait. Let's get our soil temperatures into a good 65 degrees. And, um, you know, we hit there every now and then. But then if it just kind of jumps back down in the 50s, those plants are going to suffer. Uh, it's like being on a camp out on a cold night without a sleeping bag. You're going to know what happened, and those plants certainly do. Well, we're looking up the soil temperature for today as we speak through the University of Georgia's weather network, uga.weather.edu. The soil temperature today in Spalding County, 65.92 degrees. And almost like I have a crystal ball, uh, we started planting our garden actually yesterday. So, I mean, we just started. And, you know, supposedly I know just a little bit about vegetables and if I'm not just planting till today, uh, that tells you that if you've already planted weeks ago, it was probably a little bit on the early side. Well, just looking at this, on the reports that are listed on the UGA weather site, again, that's weather.uga.edu, we get three distinct readings. And you can go back as far back. I mean, this has it keeps archives, so you can go back and look. Last year at this time, we had a 63-degree reading. It That's seems right. to me like it was warmer last year than it was this because it it's been so like inconsistent. It. But we're about 3 degrees warmer now than we were last year. But they give a reading for 2-inch, 4-inch, and 8-inch. What difference does that make? I mean, or do some things have to be planted a little bit deeper than others? That's or? right. Um, you know, I get that question quite a bit when I send people to that website. And uh, I always tell them just kind of go down the middle and look at the 4-inch temperature. Oftentimes, you're only talking about maybe, what, a degree or two difference. Not uh, even one full degree between two that's and right. eight inches. So, you know, if you look at the four-inch zone, that's where probably, you know, between the top of the soil and the bottom, that's where most of the root systems are going to be in that in that upper four inches. So if you'll pay attention to that one, um, you'll be fine. In all honesty, if you look at any of those depths and temperatures, um, you should be in the right ballpark. I mean, the main thing is you just want to try to avoid, particularly when it comes to like vegetables, um, planting when it's below 60. I always tell people 65 to give a little buffer. Um, but, you know, certainly when we start hitting soil temperatures down in the 50s, other than cool season vegetables, um, they're not going to be very happy with you. Well, just looking at the at two, four, and six inch depths, just out of curiosity, let's say we get a good soaking rain for a day. We, we take in an inch of accumulation. Doesn't happen often, but it does on occasion. How far does that inch penetrate into the soil? Would it get to that 8-inch level? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. And we oftentimes, you'll see in a lot of our publications, we'll say apply 1 inch of irrigation per week or apply 2 inches of irrigation. What exactly does that mean? Well, that means like if you were to measure how much water was sprinkling down, it would fill up 1 inch, say, in a cup. 
Okay, what does that translate to? Well, that translates to normally on normal, you know, what I call normal soils around here. Um, that's going to be a depth penetration of about four to six inches, one inch of water, unless everything, you know, is completely completely soaked or whatever already but typically if you put an inch of water out you're going to penetrate deep into that root zone and that's what we're looking for it is much more important particularly as things get established ornamentals or vegetables to do a deep thorough watering maybe once a week versus just these very light shallow waterings that are either evaporating on the surface or barely penetrating down to the root zone. So that, that's a great question you ask, and, and, and I want to see that water turned on to where it gets down in that depth. How do you know? Well, take a shovel or poke your hand into the soil and see, hey, how far down does it seem like I've got moisture down here? That's exactly the way you would tell. Well, your hands are not all cut up like mine tend to get. Do you <laughs> wear gloves typically? No. Uh, if you looked at my hands closer, they're rough, but um, I typically don't wear gloves. I should. I'm just used to going at it. At I have gloves everywhere. My problem is uh, it's kind of like the sock thing, you know, in the dryer. I've got a lot of right-handed gloves or left-handed gloves. Whenever I need a pair, just I not a pair, it. right? And I'm like, darn if I'm gonna wear one glove. <laughs> yeah, I, I get you there. I, I would. Somebody is going to get rich when they figure out the mystery of the dryer socks. <laughs> yeah. But one day, but the the focus of today's program, we're going to talk a little bit more about agriculture. And and That's Bob, right. I saw a report this morning from the governor's office. They apparently legislation was signed this week on a couple of key agricultural bills. One I wanted to ask you about because it pertained to citrus production in the state. And it mentioned that that is one of the fastest growing agribusinesses in the state. Where does citrus grow and what is grown here? Yeah, so, I, you know, when most people think of citrus, they're thinking of, you know, Florida oranges and limes and lemons and stuff like that. And we think peaches and blueberries and that we tend to limit it to that. That's right. But when we talk about citrus, um, what we're talking about is particularly in South Georgia and then over towards the southeast coast, um, there is production now starting in what we call Satsuma, which is kind of a kind of a hybrid, um, if you will, kind of an orange type, lemon type um, plant that seems to be more cold hardy than, say, we were growing typical naval Florida oranges. And so we are starting to see some interest in that. Um, Actually, our peach guy, uh, um, Dario Chavez, or who's our peach specialist, has been working with the development of cultivars that will be more cold hardy along those lines. And so we are, um, you're talking about, you know, talking about the, the legislator and all that stuff. Um, they have put in for a position right now. I don't know, you know, if it's going to get funded or not, but they're looking for a specialist, would be in our horticulture department, and they would be working primarily with this um, citrus industry. You know, for years I've gotten calls about people wanting to grow lemon trees, limes, and this and that, and I always say, yeah, you can do it, but you better have a greenhouse or a way to protect them in the wintertime. Well, we're now we're looking at varieties that potentially might can make it outside, you know, year-round in an established orchard, um, and then could be a viable industry for or, you know, people to actually begin to make a market for it. When somebody creates a cultivar such as what they're trying to fashion here, from beginning to end, I mean, I'm sure it varies, but is there a typical time frame? I mean, I, w- I would imagine it's years, but how right. many? Um, it really depends. It, when, when you're in the ornamental industry and, and like things like annuals and perennials and kind of ornamental side, um, you can virtually come out with some cultivars within just a couple of years. When it's going to be a something like a fruit bearing thing particularly i'm thinking of like we've got a we've got a pecan breeder and specialist in tifton 
Um, he's been here now for probably 20 years, and at the end of the day, I don't know if he's come out with one yet. Um, it is a very slow process before you finally come to fruition and say, hey, this is a much improved variety. So on average, it, it's across the board, but like you said, it's going to be years in most cases for mo- almost anything, and sometimes it can be decades. But certainly like on new fruit t- cultivars, particularly we're talking about the citrus and all, um, I would say on average five or six years before we start to see a new variety that's released. And that's just to develop. That's not to get it to market that's and right. co- clear regulatory hurdles and things like that. Um, once it gets to market, then you have to get people that are going to be interested in growing it. I mean, you've grown it kind of under lab conditions, so to speak, in developing that cultivar. Now you've got to get industry industry to buy into it. So it's almost like a marketing to the people that are going to eventually market it. And you've got to um, get them to buy into it. Once they start building up numbers, um, then potentially it gets into industry and then consumers. The worst thing, and I've seen it happen more than once, is where they start touting how great such and such is, this vegetable, this ornamental, this tree, and the numbers are not there to back it up. And then people start calling our office, hey, we want to get such and such a variety. Well, it's not there yet. Um, so that's sort of that does sometimes I guess you'd say the cart gets before the horse. Um, and that's not a good thing in, in the in the breeding and the and the uh, plant development world. But it does happen. But most times, you know, they're going to wait till they have a substantial database on how well that plant does that tree, and then we've got numbers in the industry. So let's now go to market, you know, to sell it. Can you think of an example just off the top of your head that over the course of your stay at in the UGA Griffin? campus and with the extension service of a cultivar that you've seen developed since you've been there and how it may differ from the original variety from which it was cultivated right well i mean just a couple uga is kind of famous for turf grass to start off Uh, so you think of some of these you you, you know most people don't think of the names of the turf grass they either know i've got centipede i've got fescue i've got got fescue but then if you start getting behind the scenes um you know in your lawn you could have um you know tiff 419 in a pasture you might have tiff 44 um there's some bahia out there one called um quick quick uh, i've got tiff tough bermuda in my yard and then there's some other uh, there's bahias called um what is one called i think it's called um I can't not remember, but it's a faster-growing Bahia. A lot of these were established down in Tifton, um, and so there are now world-famous type cultivars that have taken years to develop that are now being used in pastures, lawns, just closer to home. Griffin, um, Carol Robacher, who's one of our breeders, um, works extensively with Abelia, and she has come up with several new cultivars of Abelia that are now in the industry. And how do they differ from the old ones? Well, you know, some of the old Abelia grandifloras and so forth were, were nice plants, but a lot of them were huge. Um, it took them years to flower, and it was always just kind of a plain Jane white bloom. Now she's got um, cultivars out there, Rose Creek and some other ones that have got kind of a purpley foliage, um, you know, different colored blooms and so forth. So that's closer to home. And, and it's not like she came up with that overnight. It's taken her years and years and years to develop these cultivars and even longer to get them into the industry. But that's, you know, that's one example where, you know, right here in Griffin, we have, uh, you know, come up with cultivars. Well, you mentioned that all the peach cultivars that are constantly getting work. Does that, do you have to make adjustments to once a, a new type has been cultivated? Does it change the way it's grow, grown to a certain extent? As you mentioned, more cold hardy, it might survive a little better. Or they might make other alterations to make, you know, beneficial changes for the plant. Right. You know, have you seen that, and do you have to make adjustments for, you know, 
some changes that might result from a particular cultivar? The, the main adjustments I make personally in my position, um, since I am not a plant breeder, I'm more of a go out and sing the song of what's available. Yeah, but you have to be able to help them grow them. That's and correct. so you have to be aware of any differences. I do. And so what I'll do is I'll work with the county agents across the state, and I'll say, hey, and, and another one just popped up to mind, but Scott Neesmith, who was one of our, uh, he's retired or kind of back on part-time, but uh, you know, he developed um, several blueberry varieties that are now, um, you know, probably more adaptable to many different parts of our state. And, and, and just me keeping up with that information that, hey, this is a new variety available. Um, here are some of the attributes that, hey, this is going to do better in a hotter environment. This is going to do better, you know, say in North Georgia. So uh, climatically, yeah, I have to really stay up with these changes on different plants. Also, the, you know, when the breeders are coming up with different size plants and I'm giving a landscape talk, um, I'll know that, hey, I can't really recommend this plant unless I give them a very specific cultivar because it may, the one I, I'm people are thinking of may get 25 feet tall which is too big to put in front of a window i better know the cultivars that have been developed that are going to stay down four and five feet so along those lines yeah i look for the attributes of why would this be a better i do it um i work a lot with vegetables and although i'm not developing new varieties i work with varieties that have been developed not just from uga but from around the country uh, companies will send me seeds to trial. We do a lot with sweet corn. We will grow these varieties out and say, you know, this one looks like specifically it would work very good either in the state of Georgia or in South Georgia, North Georgia. And then the way I get that word out is through my programs and then changing my publications to reflect, hey, we got a couple of new varieties we want to throw in this publication to where people might start to pick that one up. Well, getting back to something you just said about people who were interested in citrus, the lime, the lemon, things like right. that, and you better have a greenhouse. When these companies send you these seeds of new cultivars, do they want to see you kind of split it up in between lab controlled and greenhouse controlled and actual outdoor environments to see if there are any differences? From my standpoint, um, because I sort of lay down the rules of what the way we're going to do it, um, I tell them we're going to grow it in two different environments i'm going to grow it somewhat commercially that will be under like ideal scenario where we've got you know right well um, you can control much right. more of the and then we will grow it here so a lot of times at the griffin campus or other sites that i call more homeowner type you know hey we're going to plant it we may not give it the best weed care and and this and that but we're going to see how well it does so we so we're going to grow it under basically ideal conditions but always in the field um, along how it would be done commercially but let's also kind of grow it with i'm going to say just a little bit less tender loving care that the typical homeowner might do and say hey you know we might miss an irrigation here or there are those plants going to be able to hold up for a period of drought uh, what if they get under fertilized what do they do so so we will do that many different locations you know each seed that we get might be planted in four or five locations around the state eventually end of the year you know we'll take data on it we'll, we'll typically repeat that same study again the following year and then I might say, and I'll tell a company, I'll say, hey, you know, we tried this and it bombed out. It did not do well. And, and we're not going to include that in our publications. And they're fine with that. Um, what they do like is when we say, hey, this one's really great. And then they'll say, okay, well, we can't, can we take a quote from you and put it in our catalog or something? I say, sure, you know, if it, for do, Georgia. Do they take your analysis and make further adjustments at times? They do. Um, and I can't say I'm the only one in the country doing this because, you know, they're going to use researchers and, and extension people from different areas of the country, which makes sense. But certainly from the southeast perspective, um, I always say, hey, what do you guys do with all this data I send you? Because I'll send them, you know, what the yield is, 
what disease resistance, what insects we saw, and they said, oh, we use that, you know, when we're trying to figure out. And, and a lot of the seed companies are not growing those products. They're buying them in from, from places that develop them, but they say it affects what they're going to purchase. So, yeah, it, it, all the way around, um, I think the information trickles down to, um, you know, where it needs to be, which eventually is going to wind up, again, at the breeder. And what are they looking for? Well, in the report I saw from the governor's office today, it estimated agribusiness annually in the state of Georgia was basically a $73 billion a year industry. You think that's, that, right. that's pretty accurate? You know, it's, it's huge, and it's, it's, it's really the biggest industry we got in the state. And, and when people say, say that, oh, well, I don't think agriculture is that big, you know, in, in, in Georgia because, you know, I only see like a cattle farm here or, or you know, a cornfield there. It's way more than that. Um, well, I mean, it touches so many more industries than you might right. realize. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, it's you know, the, it's everything from the shipping industry to um, you know, overseas to well, even the employees at the grocery store. They are impacted by agricultural success. There's no doubt about it. And, and there are other entities of agriculture that people don't even think of being agriculture. And I'm thinking of places like florist shops, um, the landscape companies, you know, tree companies. It's agriculture is just not, you know, corn and cows. It is anything along the lines that has to be grown. And, and that's, you know, you know, as well as I do, that's a huge gamut of things that are out there, including the chemical companies that support and, you know, develop chemical controls and so forth. Well, there's pesticides and herbicides. That's right. that's, I mean, it's a very expansive field. But how it would is. you define agriculture? I mean, being somebody who is in mm-hmm. the industry, well, is there a standard industry definition? You or know, I, don't, I don't know if I ever thought about that question. Um, essentially, to me, it's, it's working with, to some extent, the natural resources that we have and using it to, you know, develop a product of some sort uh, that'll that'll kind of better you know humanity and if you will put it that way um so it's 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 growing something and it doesn't have to be and and it's everything that go along with that like we just said it's the support of growing that crop being in an ornamental um if it's a fish industry because that's part of it you know if if people are raising catfish that's part of agriculture um everything that goes along with that you know the feed that's produced and that goes all the way back to the again to the farm again so it's it's very hard to just put it into words what it is. It includes, you know, if you think about Griffin, a lot of people don't even know this, but we got like one of the biggest food science places, you know, in the country and a premier one. And thought, well, food science, what's that got to do with agriculture? It's got everything to do with agriculture because, you know, the, the products that they are testing are coming from agriculture, be it a meat product, you know, a vegetable or whatever. And so um, it's all the way down the line, including things like security. Uh, certainly came to light, you know, maybe when we hit 9-11 um, and so forth, Twin Towers. But, you know, food security is a huge deal right now. And I think that's what's been kind of, ever since 9-11, I've said that's when everything exploded in the garden. Um, no no pun intended, exploded in the garden. We're talking about 9-11. But, you know, everyone had a huge interest in, hey, I, I want safe food source. I want to make sure it's locally grown. And in some cases, that means I'm going to grow my own stuff. And it, it's just been off the chain ever since as far as gardening programs. People want to know, hey, how do I produce that? Can I can I get my own eggs? Can I raise chickens? You know, can I do a garden? Um, it's It's been crazy ever since. In fact, I tell my wife, you know, it's, you'd think I'd be kind of winding down here towards the career, and, and uh, I'm busier than I've ever been in the spring. You are one of those types, however, <laughs> that the more you do, the more you find to do. That's right. It's just, and I think they just – you can't get away from it. <laughs> but what types of jobs – I mean, is it are the opportunities almost as as boundless as the field of agriculture itself? 
You, you know, I believe they are. Um, I, I think, you know, somebody's thinking about, hey, I really enjoy agriculture, and I always have enjoyed agriculture, even though I didn't grow up in a – I grew up in kind of a city environment, but I always wanted to be on a farm. I always wanted to do that. Uh, and, and there's probably a lot of people out there like that. But th- there are a lot of avenues to go. If you're more scientific, there's certainly a lot of lab positions that are available. You can work with even places like the EPA, you know, Environmental Protection Agency. A lot of that's agriculture-related. Department of Agriculture, you know, they have everything from um, inspectors that go out and check farms to ones that work at poultry houses and so forth. There's, you know, from my side of things, University of Georgia, um, the sky's the limit. Certainly you're going to have to get some maybe level higher level degrees but from a county agent position into a specialist to researchers or teaching students um, there's a lot of different avenues to go I I think the biggest advantage to the agriculture is um, it just to me it's never boring Uh, there's just something different every single day that you have to kind of deal with and, and that keeps it you know from being boring I think of boring I'm thinking I'd hate to do the same thing in the same spot every single day like and God bless the people that have to do that but for me, it's it's a changing environment every day. It's always another challenge, and I think that's the key. But I feel like from an agricultural standpoint, um, you know, particularly with this really great need for people to want to see produce being produced in our state, in our country, um, I think it's going to continue to grow. Well, you mentioned that you grew up in more of a, an urban environment that's but right. always had a, a heart for being out on the farm. Amongst your colleagues, do you do you find that they have share more of your background, more urban and transitioned into farm life, or do we mostly have rural people who just develop a love for it, or is it a, a healthy combination? It's somewhat of a combination, but I, I do find that, particularly in my like department, whatever, um, a lot of those folks did not come from a farm. Uh, they came from kind of a suburban area. Well, like your assistant, Mackenzie English, That's for right. starters. I, she does not really strike me as a farm girl. Uh, no, but you, amazingly, she can do the she, job, she do don't get all. me wrong, but... But no, I think if you, you gave her a choice, she'd be you know in a comfortable subdivision area maybe. But um, but she does a great job. And, and, and I you know it's kind of funny. I, I had a, a girl that worked with me, Shelby Behensky. I don't know if you remember her name. I but, remember uh, Shelby. Dude, she's my first little uh, I don't know what you would call it uh, predecessor or whatever. But she's actually now in our horticulture department uh, taking um, classes to get a master's in horticulture. And, and she just absolutely loved it. I could tell, you know, just her passion when I had her working with me, she wanted to go in the greenhouse. She'd go outside and work. She'd do whatever as long as it related to her working with her hands in horticulture. So she's the, the first one I've ever had that actually took an interest in it. But, um, you know, I've just always loved everything from farms to tractors to growing. I, I've done it since I was little, even though I lived in kind of an urban area to grow up with. We always had a garden. I mean, we were always growing something. And it's always just been fascinating to me to, to, to get something as a seed and then eventually actually have something on your table, you know, a month or two, three months later that you actually produce something that for yourself. So I just think it's a cool thing. I enjoy uh, my passion is talking vegetables, fruits, whatever. I, lo- you know, I can talk about ornamentals. And oddly enough, today I have a program at noon called Attracting Birds to the Landscape. And that program is actually in Ohio. But, you know, obviously I'll be, unless I can... You know, transport yeah, myself yeah, up Delta there. Yeah, Delta might not be ready when that's you are right, on that that's one. That's right. I'll be doing it virtually, but I think that's an interesting one. And we certainly have a lot of birds in our landscape at the house. But, uh, but you know, it's just the diversity of what you can get into. Uh, well, you work primarily with the University of Georgia Extension Service Program. That's correct. And does almost every county in Georgia have an extension service now? Yeah, I wouldn't say every, but, but close. almost every. Yeah, I, mean, I do. I, I, and there will probably be a few exceptions where they're being covered from one county next door. 
but most counties, and I would say not all, but most, and, and certainly the major majority, have a county extension agent. A county agent is kind of a field representative of the University of Georgia. Um, they're kind of, you know, if you think of a, a hamburger place or whatever, those are the guys up at the counter taking the order. So they're figuring out what someone needs, and then they got to turn around and go to the cook, which is me. I'm the specialist that may have the answer to what their need is. Um, and then it kind of goes on. And there's someone in the back room trying to invent the next hamburger. That's the, you know, the research and so forth. So it's kind of the way it works. But, um, I, you know, I was a county agent when I first started, and it was uh, there was never a boring day. What county did you serve? Uh, I started out in Clayton County, believe it or not, kind of urban area. I uh, worked a lot with landscape industry, turf, golf courses, you know, all that type of stuff. And that's when it was still less urban than it is yeah, now right. it had a little bit of a little bit of rural to it there were a few cows in that um and then i moved down briefly down to um upson county and, I, and that was a lot of more agriculture and then from there i went into horticulture department as a specialist but uh but I, I loved every minute of it and and it's a career you know um you know you're not gonna you're not gonna win the lottery doing it you're not gonna get super rich but you know I think it's way more important. I tell young people, if you can get up in the morning on a Monday and say, you know, I got to go to work today. I'm excited about that, or, or it doesn't bother me at all. I'm glad to go, uh, and that's the way I feel. Um, then you, you have definitely hit a home run on your career. I've got a sister-in-law. Um, she works for Tyson Foods out in Arkansas. She's a big wig. She's like a vice president. Hates her job. Has always hated her job. Makes, that's got to be tough. Makes incredible money. Probably five times more what I make. And at the end of the day, she can't stand to go to work. Uh, and, and it's not worth it to me, you know, because you have no time to spend your money. Um, you don't enjoy what you're doing. I like my job. I think in agriculture, um, the word flexible, as I would use, there's a lot of flexible jobs where you can kind of work on what you need to work on. But at the end of the day, you can influence that. Uh, you know what you're going to do that day and then there's flexibility and you know hey I don't want to be in the office all day so I'm going to call some farms and go out and make a field visit so uh, I just love that aspect of it not being I'm, I'm not one that you know we've got folks that love working in labs we've got a lot of lab technicians that work for UGA and they enjoy being in that somewhat kind of closed in environment they, they, they like the um, comfort maybe of having the same thing every day but uh, not me I, I need to change the scenery so um, I, I like the diversity of the job I have. Well, and the thing with the classes that, and the presentations that you make around the state, it inspires people to go out and hit the garden. So I would suspect that it's a little tougher for you to go perform these presentations in, say, January and February, knowing people are going to get out in the garden way too soon because they've been inspired. So are you typically busier with these types of presentations at this time of year when the time is actually ripe for planting? Um, and the answer to that is no, I'm busy from January through now and through about the end of May. Um, it does not slow down much in presentations, but the audience changes. Um, here's the bottom line. In January, we do a lot of industry trainings because it slows down for industry, industry being like the landscape companies, to some extent the farmers and stuff like that. Even I'm, lawnmower companies right. come to you guys. That's right. That A good time for training is January, February for the professionals because they are i'm not saying they're stopped but they have slowed down a little bit they don't have to run out if they're gonna have a slow time that's it so we focus on those audiences i also do a lot of my personnel county agent trainings that i do for the agents are going to come in january february because again for them even though it hasn't stopped it's typically a little slower once the springtime cranks up man i'm being asked to come talk to a lot of um like 
county agent programs, master gardener talks, um, gardening series talks, in this case, out-of-state presentations. And so it's a lot of more consumer stuff as we warm up, uh, which is fine. Um, I'm about tired of it, to be honest <laughs> I think I've done 37 presentations in the last yeah, two and a half months, and I, I'm like, at this time of the year, I'm like, okay, i got a few more. I can make it to the end, then I'm going to go on vacation somewhere so, and just hide out for a week. So Now, how do these presentations get organized? Is it the county agent coming to you and saying, listen, you know, I'm in Bacon County, and we've got, right. uh, you know, people are ready to come here. You provide, lend your expertise. Is that how it works, or do you reach out, or is it a joint thing? Yeah, it depends. Uh, on the industry ones, you know, sometimes we get contacted by an industry group saying, hey, we, we, we got, a, you know, 37 guys really want to learn about pruning in the landscape. Could you do something? And we might do that. A lot of the times on the commercial ones, we're for farmers or, you know, commercial landscape, we, des- we, we, we develop those programs, and we advertise them, and we get the group to come to us. And, and often have no trouble doing that because we get a lot of interest in that. Later on, as I start doing these master gardener talks and, and, and consumer workshops and this and that, um, a lot of times those are the county agents. They're utilizing not just me but appropriate specialists for whatever that talk may be. And so I get, I guess you, we call that invited presentations, but I get a ton of invited presentations where basically I do nothing more than show up with a little thumb drive with a program on it and pop it into a computer and, you know, and off I go. It's almost in auto mode um, talking about whatever I'm talking about. Like today, you know, they just, when you have publications at UGA like I do, they're, they're available to the world. So, you know, everyone can see them. And so someone in Ohio saw that I wrote a publication on, um, you know, attracting birds to the landscape. It was somebody with, with the Ohio Extension up there. And they said, hey, let's get him to, you know, give a presentation. So I, I understand I have like about 280 people signed up for today's webinar. Um, I have no clue who they are. I won't probably even see them, but... I'll be talking birds here in about you know about two hours, uh, one way or the other. So, now what what are the routine day to day tasks of a county extension agent? Okay, for a county agent, um, you know, typically what they're going to do is um, they will, you know, depending on the county, they will take a lot of phone calls during the day, and it could be everything from routine, from like, hey, wh- what time do I plant fescue grass? What time of the year? To they may have to make field visits, particularly in rural, more rural counties. They may be going out to look at whether peanuts are ready to be harvested. Um, hey, do I need to, um, you know, how, what kind of weed control can I use on this pasture? They're going to answer a lot of agricultural questions if they are what we call the ANR, the, the Agricultural Natural Resource Agent. Um, they're going to probably write some publications. Typically, it's going to be local stuff like newspaper articles. They may do some, you know, some small-town radio show. Some of them actually even do TV. I like this one. Absolutely. So it's going to be a lot of that kind of stuff um, along with, um, you know, in, they don't. They, what they don't focus on as much as the, that I have to focus on would be publications. Um, they, they will write some things, but typically they're using our publications. Um, they also are lining up a lot of trainings in which, in some cases, they'll teach the trainings, but a lot of times they'll, they'll get what we call an area specialist is what uh, basically I would be. So I'd be in the area of fruits and vegetables. Um, so they're, they're the behind-the-scenes, um, really doing all the legwork type stuff. We also, you know, in the counties, we have 4-H agents. Um, a 4-H is part of the University of Georgia program, although you're probably familiar with it in the school system. Um, it is run through the University of Georgia, so we actually have county agents that work through the University of Georgia in the county office that go and do the youth programs. And, and most of those programs are going to have agricultural basis to them. It might be about 
you know, food health, food safety, about growing a garden, about animal care. But that's all going to be related. And, and while we're on the subject, there's also in some counties what they call, I know, I used to call them home economists. Now they're, um, I, I can't remember what they call it now, but it's like um, basically they're going to be talking about things like food safety and, and diet and, and um, those type things. In the old days, they used to do canning classes and stuff. But that's still popular. Um, they fact, used to do egg candling courses right, right they, here in, in Spalding County. They still have. I don't know about Spalding County, but they're, they're still going on. Um, consumer science was the word I was looking for. I know we called them home, home economists back in the day. But consumer science, family and consumer science agents, um, yeah, they, they do a tremendous amount of work, sometimes with youth, but also a lot with adult audiences. And it typically, from what I can tell, has to do with some type of a you know, usually a health aspect, be it diet, it could be financial planning, that type of stuff. Well, um, I'm sorry, but home economist sounds a heck of a lot cooler than, than consumer science because well, it sounds know. like you're trying to save us some money with the word economist <laughs> thrown in there. So That's right. That's I would right. tend to pay a little more attention. But yeah. what are the requirements for your position as a horticulture specialist yeah. for the state? So so I'll start from, you know, so t- I'm going to start with county agents. So to become a county agent, um, typically now, you, you would need to uh, get a master's degree. And they do, on some rare occasions, will hire someone with a bachelor's degree in a, and it used to be very strict. It had to be like one of these two disciplines. Now it's more of like an agriculture-related field. So like forestry would work. Certainly, my day, I, t- I was an agronomist, so I had an agronomy degree. But now it would be called like soil, uh, crop and water and soil science. It could be um, horticulture, but something related to that. Um, but most times, and if you get hired with a bachelor's as a county agent, county representative, you're going to have to get your bachelor, uh, your master's degree. I think they give you, it's a certain number of years they get you to complete it. Otherwise, you're going to be gone. On the specialist side, when you start coming into the specialist side where I am, um, most times it's going to require a Ph.D., and so um, you may have either got your Ph.D. or you'll be working towards that as a state specialist. Certainly for teaching, um, most times when I'm talking about like teaching students, most of those are going to have a Ph.D. And research is almost always going to have a Ph.D. So it's a, it's a long road on the schooling portion of things. But a lot of times um, the University of Georgia works, can work with you, uh, particularly like I'm thinking of the county agents. A lot of them did not have a master's degree but went to school while still working. Um, there's a lot of flexibility there, particularly now with the online classes that are available. I mean, you can literally you can get a degree from your computer right here. So um, they're making it easier for people to get advanced degrees. I am guessing that your day-to-day schedule is always fluid. I, I did, You just never right. know what's going to come up. That's right. When you're going to get home late... What causes it? What are what are the, some of the factors that lead you to have to be there later than you might have intended? Ninety nine percent of the time, if if I can get home late at this time of year, it's from a program, uh, and it's usually because I'm you know program. Ninety percent of my programs are not in Griffin. Um, you know, right? Like here's a good example. But I did a program a few weeks back up in Dade County. Do you know where Dade County it's is? It's in the very northwest corner of the state. We might as well just call it Chattanooga. So, yeah, you, and, you and, matter of fact, I think you probably had to go to Chattanooga go to, and circle you go back. Tennessee to get to Georgia. That's right. So. Um, I finished, that was an evening program, which I do not prefer. If you folks hear me out there, I don't like night programs. And I, I started at, um, I think we started at 6 o'clock, time I got through, and all the singing, dancing, whatever, and questions. Um, it was about 8 o'clock before I finished. And I turned. I, and I had a program the next day, so I had to come home. Um, 
Bob didn't get home till about 11:30 that night. So, because I hadn't eaten, I had to grab food, and, and I was tired, puppy. So, so it's usually going to be a program. If I don't have anything pressing, you know, I'm gonna get out of there. I, I get to work early, so I'm I'm like the first one there at the office usually. I'm liable to pull in about seven o'clock in the office. It's like a ghost town there. I like it like that. I'm getting my stuff done, uh, and so I'm gonna typically leave a little bit earlier. So, uh, I'd rather get it done. I, you know, I'm like one of these. I check out. You know, it has to be a routine stuff at three o'clock in the afternoon because my caffeine has now worn out and uh, I'm going downhill. Well, the one advantage to Dade County, it is consistently among the cheapest gas in all of Georgia. <laughs> I mean, I'm, on a weekly basis, they're amongst the leaders in low price. That's right. In terms of fuel, and, so and, we will give them that. And I got to give a shout out to the county agent lady up there, Sarah Dyer, because um, I've done her talk a couple of times up there, and that girl packs them in the room. I mean, we had close to like 60 or 70 people. And if you've been to Dade County, I mean, I, I made the comment, I said, well, we must have the entire county here at this program because there can't be that many people up there. Well, AAA, the auto club group, lumps Dade into a three-county region, Catoosa, Dade, and Walker. There you go. So you might have gotten a little pull from each of those I, other two I, I, counties. I might have had a few, uh, that's right, outsiders coming in. But, uh, but yes, yeah, so, sometimes I'm doing it in South Georgia. Um, the ones that are easier is like, you know, Henry County calls a lot. And I, I can run up there, you know, knock that out and be back in jig time. But uh, but there are you know, plenty of times when I, I've got to travel. And that's normally going to be, you know, what's going to hold me over. Or if we have, like, you know, a conference like we do at Savannah, we'll have a fruit and growers conference. That's going to be several days. But, I mean, there's no sense in not making that kind of a fun trip. When you go to Savannah, uh, yeah, you're going to give talks and you're going to be answering questions. But you got other day. stuff. You're going to be eating seafood at night and, and having a good time. And that's part of the, I think, the, the, the fun part of working for the University of Georgia. It's going to be diverse. Um, and, you, and you're going to have, I think you're going to have a lot of fun at times in your job. It's like everything else. You know, if I, I had to pick the one thing I don't like about the job sometimes, it's the reporting process, which is everywhere. I you would know, think the publications would get a little mundane, too. They, they can. Um, and just the process of putting it through all the reviews and so forth. Writing the publications, the easy part is getting it actually published. It takes time. But, um, yeah, sometimes just filling out the paperwork and meetings, meetings, meetings. You go to a lot of meetings. But uh, other than that, you know, I, the way I look at it, heck, they're paying me the same to do that as they are to have, go out fun. And, and uh, you know, I get to grow vegetables as a job. And, I mean, that, 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 what kind of fun is that right there? Anytime so. you can get paid to do a job that you would do for nothing, exactly. that's when you've really hit the formula for success. Uh, one of my favorites, I get called a lot because I used to write for, um, was QDM Magazine, which is Quality Deer Management, and they're under some other regime now. But I wrote a lot of magazine articles, and one was for, like, this deer hunting magazine. And so I get called still a lot to come out and make, like, um like food plot suggestions on farms or, you know, hunting clubs and stuff. And I'm like, I'm all over that. So the agent will say, hey, I got somebody who wants to, you know, figure out what to plan out in these fields for wildlife. I like, I'll be there in about an hour. Uh, it's, it's, it's good stuff when that happens. Are extension agents across Georgia getting a little younger in, in terms of new <laughs> hires? Well, compared to me, everybody's getting a little younger. Um, yeah, you know, the average agent that we hire in is probably going to be, you know, let's just say they finished their master's. So they're going to be in there like, kind of early 20s maybe and so yeah they're looking like babies to me when i go to these programs now and i knew all the guys you know i knew all those agents um, is that is that the case that maybe people don't hang on as long to their extension jobs here's what i find um typically we have a lot of turnover and i'm not and i'm not going to be uh you know cover this up there's a lot of turnover on new agents um usually within the first two years if it's going to happen is what i'm saying once they kind of hang two, three, four, five years, they tend to hang on. It's like, hey, you know, this is better than I thought it was. 
Um, so, well, I'm sure you knew our former county agent Wade Hutchison. Everybody knew Wade. Oh yeah. Oh, he's still he's still up there, and uh, he's up in um yeah, somewhere else in Walker Georgia county. now. Yeah. Yeah, Walker. Oh, I know Wade. Yeah, I know Wade real. So well. you weren't very far away when you were in Dade. I, that's right. And I have done field visits with Mr. Wade up in uh up in Walker County. In fact, I talked to him not too long ago, so he calls. Now, who makes the decision as to who hires the county agent? Is that each county government, or yeah. is it a University of Georgia that makes that call? That's that's a good question. So when you listen to the name, it's called county agent. Um, it, it's kind of deceiving. Um, the county agents are funded both by the actual county that they're working in as well as the University of Georgia, and that splits all over the board depending on the counties. Typically, as you get in towards Atlanta, you're going to have a lot more county funding. So some of those agents, from what I understand, are being paid 50 to 80% of their salaries coming out of the county, and then 20% by UGA. More typically in the more rural counties, like if you're looking at possibly Spalding, Pike, Lamar, um, it's normally going to be the other way around. 80% of that money will be coming out of the University of Georgia's budget and 20% or so from the county. So it's a little bit of both, and so they kind of report to both um, bases. As far as who hires them, uh, it'll stem from the University of Georgia to begin with. That'll, that'll you know, advertise that position you you would put in for a you know to try to apply for it but then as you're going through the application process and you're being interviewed um the county will definitely be able to interview you they'll have a say so that yeah this person looks like they're going to be good or not good so the county you can make or break you actually well you just brought up an interesting point about go back to what you were saying because you made me forget my point but uh you were talking about how they hire them and the county you know pays for part what does the it just dawned on me what i wanted to ask what does the university of georgia what benefit did they derive by pouring funding into the extension program so i think the biggest word is it gives us visibility it it, it kind of gives us a hand of the university of georgia in every county out there and and, and the university is making a great attempt here lately i thought what is the word so they call this isn't a money-making venture this is more of a, a branding type that's effort. the word i was looking for yeah they are really pushing branding now and lord i i had the big chief boss uh laura perry in one of my programs at the um what did he call that the fruit and growers conference in savannah and you know she floats around and she happens to be sitting in on my session and my first two slides up there, I swear I didn't even have the word University of Georgia on there. I just I just jumped right into it about, you know, troubleshooting organic problems or whatever. Boy, I heard about that. Now, you didn't even say where you were from, blah, blah, blah. blah. I mean, everybody knew who I was. But, uh, yeah, so they, they want you to put the word out. And so bigger in the counties now, um, you know, they, they drive a vehicle that says University of Georgia Extension Service, blank, blank county. Or, you know, if they got a program, they're going to have that UJ written all over it. So, to me, it's kind of not only is it like, you know, a good advertisement, it's a recruiting tool. Um, having these agents going in and working with these kids, a lot of times, you know, that prompts them to not only think about going to the University of Georgia, but potentially, you know, working in agriculture. So it's, you know, you've heard of the FFA program. Um, right. It, it's kind of along, the, the 4-H is very much along the lines of that. They do a lot of similar things. And so it, it's kind of a recruiting tool um, as we have the agents out there, and they're taking care of all these issues, but they're also, you know, on occasion getting someone interested that might actually join the ranks. I've seen it several times, haven't been here forever now, where we'll have 4-Hers that come up through the ranks and they say, I really love this 4-H program, and they wind up going to school, getting a degree, and then coming back as a 4-H agent or an agricultural agent. Do you have any direct contact with the U.S. Department of Agriculture? Um, I do on, on 
on a number of occasions. Uh, it can be uh, typically for me, it's trying to get money at them for grants, and that's where I'll correspond with them. Um, I do work with the Department of Agriculture. Um, we do a lot of certification trainings. Um, if, if you're an applicator of putting out pesticides, you have to have a license. And in most cases, classes on the UGA right. campus. So we'll teach classes that, that count for credit, but we have to go through the Department of Agriculture uh, in Georgia to get them approved and certified. And they'll say, hey, this counts for whatever, two hours credit, four hours credit, and so forth. So we do interface like that. I do work on occasion with like USDA NRCS, which is Natural Resource Conservation Service. Um, I've done joint programs with them. As you know, my wife just retired from NRCS, Natural Resource Conservation, and I had no choice but to be involved many times on programs. And she just stuck my name on the agenda. So, um, but they're good folks, and, and that's, that's another, you know, aspect of agriculture people might not think about. It. They might buy, well, yeah, I really would love to work for the federal government. Well, you could work in agriculture with the federal government. There are different things. There are seed commissions. There's inspectors. There's organic inspectors. Um, NRCS, which they basically work on soil erosion control. And let me tell you, just working here at the station, they have an expansive media relations department. That's right. That's right. They are big on that. Um, and, you know, we've got we've got USDA people on the Griffin campus. It's not just University of Georgia. Uh, you know, we've got the seed saving place over there, Seed Bank. That's USDA. Which is the only really top secret part. Everybody has this Area 51 vibe <laughs> about the UGA Griffin <laughs> campus. Really, the Seed Bank is the only place. That's right. That's really, and I wouldn't say guarded, but well protected. A lot of people and food pick to a certain That's degree. Right. Yeah, food pick kind of to degree yeah the usda the seed um saving place or whatever um yeah most people don't even know it exists and if i understand correctly having spoke with some of the employees over there i'm good good friends with them um i think there's only one other location it might be colorado or something like that um but basically it is a bank of all these old seeds including when they come up with new varieties they keep them just in case whatever we have to re-promulgate species right. the, the big one hits and we lose all these varieties we actually have a base of being able to bring those varieties back. Which is, I think, you know, good thinking. But it's does, pretty cool. Does private industry, I mean, does someone with an agriculture degree have a future within the private sector? Um, absolutely. Um, you know, we actually, and, and this is bad, but we, we actually, we do a tremendous job of training. When, when folks come on either as a specialist or a county agent, uh, we put them through extensive trainings, more so on the county agent side. Uh, they're going to have core trainings. We teach them pretty much kind of everything that they should encounter in agriculture. And what happens sometimes, you know, we're talking about the retention rate. A lot of times after about two years when we've kind of finished our core training, we've got them, you know, down perfect industry comes in and they say hey and particularly it's a lot of the times it's going to be seed companies chemical companies that you know do herbicides and things like that hey we got an opening for you you know we need you to come work this area of the state you know selling herbicides or we would love you for you to be in our seed division you know going out and trying to sell seeds so industry will will, will gobble up a lot of our good employees sometimes but if that's something that you want to do from the start certainly um there are plenty of opportunities in in turf uh, in agriculture, um, inspectors, and things like such. All right, so we've talked about your, your least favorite part of the job. <laughs> well, what is it that, that revs your engine about going to work every day? I mean, I know that it's, for you mm. it's being outside. It's right. something different, a new challenge. But what are some of the other things that, that really get your gears going about your profession? Um, 
I like interfacing with people, believe it or not. And, and there are times well, like anybody. You have a talent for it. That's right. And, and like anybody, there are times I just want to be left alone and be quiet or be sitting on my boat dock. But, um, you know, even during like the COVID thing, when we kind of shut down for a while, I was going stir crazy. I'm like, I, I got to be in. And then we were doing all our programs virtually. And even though I just said I have got a virtual program today, obviously it's going to be kind of hard to be up in Ohio right after this. Um, I don't like it. I, I, I want to see a face in front of me when I'm talking. I like the interaction of the crowd. You know, I tell a joke. I want to see if it worked or not. On, on a computer, you have no idea. I mean, it could be the funniest thing in the world, but you hear nothing. So um, I like the interaction I get with the job with people. Uh, do you tend to do Q&As at the end of your presentations? I do. I mean, but not by design. They just happen. Um, I, I told my wife there's times when, I, particularly if you're doing something like a uh, – you know, where you got a bunch of garden clubs there. Uh, you, you can just about, if they say, come give a 30-minute talk or an hour talk, you, you just about can guarantee you're going to be there another hour. Um, those, those ladies in those garden clubs, I mean, they, they, they would keep you there hostage for, for 24 hours asking questions. They never run out of questions. Um, so, yeah, I, I always, like today, you know, it's an hour program. I'm supposed to go 45 minutes to leave time for questions. And uh, but ideally, you probably want to go thirty and thirty if you're going to get all the questions in right. in the allotted yeah. time. That's right, and, and and I'm gonna probably need forty five minutes to get out what I got out. But um, but it's gonna be interesting. But yeah, there's always uh, all the talks I do. Um, even if you do industry, there'll be what you'll notice is you know the more industry related it is, the less questions there'll be. Do you have some of your presentations downwrote by now, or do you or do you change them? Oh, I, I mean, like if you came, told me a, a average talk or a very common talk for me would be to talk about like spring vegetables. Right. Um, I could do that upside down, asleep, backwards with a blindfold on. I've exactly. done it so many times. But yes, depending on, it just depends on what time slot you give me. Sometimes you have 45 minutes, sometimes an hour. Many times you have two and a half hours. So I can add to it more slides or less slides and, and, and go as long as you want. And, and again, you could stop early and, and fill up the rest of the day with the questions so yeah i've got some that are just you know i mean in the back of my head i could do them blindfold but you just have to you have to be able to and i think that comes with experience be able to work to the crowd and know you know when's a good stopping point or you know if i'm doing a long presentation i'm not going to kill those people for two hours i'm going to come to a stopping point and say hey let's just take a break like i know how it is i mean you can't go that long so um i could i can keep talking for four hours but you have to have a little rest in your mind. Well, you you travel all over every corner of the state for these presentations. Now, I'm not personally real good with the driving for that long. Right. I mean, I do it because I have to, but it's I'm no fan. But I'm sure that when you're if you're alone in a vehicle and I'm alone in a vehicle, we're looking at different things. We look at a landscape. I see something, and you see something with your professional eyes, something mm -hmm. entirely different. Do you find when you're driving to these things that you're kind of looking at the landscapes, like, oh, well, that's not right, or, hey, these people are doing a fine job with this? I mean, is that what you see when you're on those long country roads? I, a lot of times I will. I also I love equipment, as you know. We've done equipment talks. I'm always looking at the, the tractors if I see them and the, and the implements and so forth. So I, I love equipment. I love seeing that. Um, yeah, I, I'm all the time looking at something i'm looking for wildlife i enjoy seeing that uh but a lot of times they got me on the telephone so you know it used to be back in the day when i started and, and you started we didn't have a cell phone i mean if you had to make a phone call it was literally you better find a pay phone call side or 
road and get a pay phone. Uh, now with the cell phones, I got agents calling as I'm driving. Uh, a lot of times I'm not really, I'm driving, but I'm not paying attention to what's out there on the sides as far as, you know, scenery. And I'm like, okay, let me answer this question. I, here's a good, I had a question on tomatoes on the way over here, and I drove right past the entrance to this place, and I wound up down at the railroad tracks. I forgot to turn into the radio station. So. I've done that before. So, so maybe talking on the phone does distract you. <laughs> yeah, you know, and this is National Distracted Driving Month, uh, well, so I, do bear that in mind. I guess I'm your poster child. Just a quick couple of announcements from the UGA Griffin campus. Spring graduation and the brick ceremony is just around the corner. That's going to be held Wednesday, May 10th at 10 a.m. on the lawn of the Student Learning Center. The UGA campus will be holding a bake sale just in time for Mother's Day. This is coming up Thursday, May 11th from 10 until 1 on the first floor of the Flint building right next door to the campus store. Cakes, pies, breads, and other special treats will be available. Proceeds will benefit the Griffin Campus Fund for staff and student development programs. And mark your calendars for the UGA Garden Spring Fest. That's coming up May 7th from 1 to 4. That's a Sunday afternoon at the UGA Research and Education Garden, conveniently located on West Ellis Road. Fun for the entire family. They'll have picnic areas. The event is free. For more information, give them a a holler on their website, griffin.uga.edu, or you can give them a call at 770-412-4400. How come, I mean, what led you to vegetation as opposed to commodities, pigs, cows, or things like that? Was was your interest always more in growing, or did you at one point, because, I mean, I know you do judgings for livestock, or yeah. at least did at one time. And, and we raised cows at the house to some extent, but, uh, you know, I, I think it worked out kind of, I think the reason I got to the University of Georgia like this, my first job was not with the University of Georgia. It was with a large commercial wholesale ornamental nursery place down so in South Georgia. worked in reverse this time. And, it, and the reason I got into that was because, hey, it was a job. I need a job. I'm out of money, and uh, let's go there. And I worked here for five years, and, and I wouldn't change that for the world. I learned ornamental plants by the name, by how to identify them, by look. And then it led from that to that Clayton County job, which was heavy in ornamentals and turf. And I was like, yeah, I know these plants. I can do this. And so that's where it kind of, so it sort of just fell into the fact that that was my strong suit to start with. And and it kind of has stayed that way. When I got the opportunity, the guy retired that did the vegetables and fruits, and I was doing primarily landscape stuff. Um, basically, I said, hey, yeah, if he's gone, I'll handle the, the edible stuff because I'd rather do that. And boom, here I am. Well, now I'm going to ask a personal question, and this Uh-oh. doesn't come from the vegetable side of things, more from the ornamental. But we had our storms in January, and we, we kind of jokingly talked, but you were serious in that this could happen, that seeds and pollens from many different varieties well to our west could have ended up in Spalding County as a result of the tornadic activity. That's right. I Just for some reason, and it happened in my yard too but i have seen something uh, i guess it's a weed it's an attractive weed called heather and i have seen mm-hmm. so much more heather this year than probably in the last 10 years combined is there any reason that i would be seeing that yeah i mean it's come from somewhere and and whether it be wind blown or disseminated by birds uh, it certainly has come in there and when i think of heather i'm usually thinking like mexican heather which is actually kind of used as an ornamental yeah i mean it, 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 it would right. pass for one but it is somewhat invasive uh and it's a prolific cedar once it, if it ever gets to that fruition of, of coming if you to look cedar. along the sides of the roads people right. it's a lavender light purple flavor colored thing and, and when right. you see them you will see a lot of it in an area so you'll see that there's also another purple one out there called verbena sometimes you'll see but uh yeah most of those are just being disseminated through storms really wind storms and then birds eating the seed and depositing them 
But um, there, there's just no telling what's going to show up in your yard next. And would the, I mean, the soil really didn't get affected by the January storms, but uh, are, is the ground, is the soil that got exposed? Maybe it used to have trees all around and they were devastated. Right. Does that soil need time to become adjusted to going from shade to sun to be able to grow items? Or does the soil kind of have a natural ability to understand its role? Yeah, the soil itself probably would not have changed at all um, from the, you know, from maybe a sudden catampy type scenario to now full sun. What will change is over time you won't have quite as organic content coming down from the leaves that were, you know, basically biodegrading. And the other thing is now what's going to grow under there can rapidly change because if you've gone from plants underneath there that were loving kind of a shading environment and now all of a sudden you're in full sun yeah that's going to change what people would need to plant at this point they're going to have to have something that can be exposed to a lot of sunshine well bob you have any final thoughts before we have to wrap up this week's program well no but i would say just to the young folks if there's any out there or parents um you know consider the agricultural field again it's something that i think I, i've never regretted any any moment of it and it, and it's a great way to do it it takes a little bit of you know tell your kids to, to really beef up on sciences and things like that because that's going to be really important chemistry science any kind of thing like that but certainly there are plenty of careers out there and i think the opportunity looks good well, Bob Westerfield, a state UGA horticulture specialist, great to have you on board again, and thank you for teaching us so much more about gardening than we knew before. And listeners, we thank you for your time as well and hope that you will join us next week at the same time for the next installment of the University of Georgia Griffin Campus News. Thanks for joining us for today's program of UGA Griffin Campus News. Listen each Thursday morning at 9 for UGA Griffin Campus News on WKU AM 1450, 102.3 FM, and The Rock 88.9 FM, and streamed live on the WKURadio.com website. Today's program was made possible by Frank and Carolyn Harris of Round Oak Resources Tree Farm and Murray and Company Realtors. Thanks for joining us for today's program of UGA Griffin Campus News. Listen each Thursday morning at 9 for UGA Griffin Campus News on WKU AM 1450, 102.3 FM, and The Rock 88.9 FM, and streamed live on the WKURadio.com website. Today's program was made possible by Frank and Carolyn Harris of Round Oak Resources Tree Farm and Murray and Company Realtors. <laughs> <laughs>